In my interview with Dr. Nicholas Diaz, I learned a lot about the critical role superintendents play in directing local school policy and culture. The superintendent is a full-time role ultimately hired and directed by the Board of Education. The board works with the superintendent to really set the vision and policy for what needs to be done in the district. The superintendent is the day-to-day leader who is in charge of executing that vision. In the case of Union Township, a five-year strategic plan for the school that is informed by parents, school administrators, teachers, the board, and many folks to determine what are the things the school district really needs to do to improve. The superintendent is there to make sure the culture, quality, policies, budgets, all of those things align, that people are well directed, that there is accountability to that plan, and ultimately reporting the results of that plan back to the board and the community. Please continue listening to learn more about the role of the superintendent. Well, Dr. Nicholas Diaz, welcome to 60 Second Democracy. Tremendously excited to uh, have you on today, and and thanks so much for for taking the time. Oh, my pleasure. I love talking education and the things that we do here in uh, Union Township and uh, to make things better for our kids. I love it. So I would love to begin uh, with just a little bit of understanding how does one come to be a, a superintendent? I'd love to learn a little bit about your your path to getting here and your involvement in, in education in general. Sure. Yeah, so it began, I think everyone has a different pathway in the end, but uh, so I think I had, mine was like, I, I would say a traditional route towards it. Uh, so my sister was a teacher, my brother is was a teacher. So I got to see my sister's example, you know, growing up and her passion for education, the things she did for her students, like, things outside of the school day, like buying them bikes for Christmas and clothes when they needed it. Like she was still is an amazing, you know, human being and amazing educator. So that had an impact on me. So when I was in college, thinking about my major, being undecided, I got into education and my first teaching job. So I did my student teaching in Plainfield and my sister had been like the teacher of the year and she was going out on maternity leave and they're like, Hey, your sister's leaving. Let's make, let's put you in the classroom, <laughs> you know, natural fit. I'm like, Sure. So I was in there with uh, 29 kindergarten students. I was a kindergarten cop in the in the class, and uh, you know learned a lot from from that experience. And uh, from there, I ended up teaching first grade, second grade, mainly elementary school levels. And from there, took a stab at a principal job. There was an opening in a local district, and uh, you know I said, hey, you know I had my I was going to school, get my master's, and I had my uh, administrative certificate. I'm like, let me just apply for this job just to get, you know, an interview experience, not thinking that I was going to be leave teaching that soon. And um, sure enough, they offered me the position. I was like, oh man, now, I gotta, now what do I do? <laughs> so I became a principal very young. And from there, moved to a different larger district. And it's been kind of like that progression. And when a superintendent opening happened, the same thing, I was like, not ready to be a superintendent in my mind. I was like, you know, let me just put in for just for administrative, you know, uh, experience, uh, interview experience. And again, sure enough, it's like you have a plan and I didn't have a plan. And next thing you know, I'm a superintendent. Wasn't trying to do it. It was just kind of happened. And um, since then, I just I've learned I've learned a lot, you know, on the job. And uh, I guess we can get into that. But that was like the, the role. It was like teacher, principal and then superintendent. I love it. And. Prior to becoming the superintendent, did you have 
an idea of what the job was going to be about based on having been a principal and other things like that? Yes. I mean, I had the the great fortune of being around amazing superintendents. So one of them is Dr. Johanna Roberto, who's retired, and Dr. Timothy Purnell, who's kind of on now. He runs, uh, he's executive director for School Boards Association, and they're just amazing leaders. Um, and being around them really just make, man, this is what I think superintendents should be like. They were very personable. They cared about students. Everything that they did was, you know, based on what's best for kids. They were transparent, very visible leaders. Like they were in their office all day long and, and just seeing them and their energy that they, that they had and their, their, the way they can handle a crisis. I was just like seeing them. I was like, oh my God, they're, they're really great. And just, I learned a lot just from being a sponge and just being around them. Um, not everybody has that experience. I know some people can say like, I had a terrible experience with my, you know, my boss, but my bosses were awesome. They really, really were. And they still are I still keep in contact with both of them. I still consider both of them my mentors. And uh, yeah, I owe a lot to both of them. And when you say your bosses, mm-hmm. when you are a principal, is your boss a superintendent? Yes. Yeah. So the, so how it works is the superintendent, and, there, and there's usually in a larger district, there may be assistant superintendents, business administrators. Uh, so I was in Somerville and Manville, and the structure was there was a su- superintendent. There were some assistant superintendents as well, who like director of curriculum was their title and um, director of student services, another one. And then there's the building level administrators who are the principals and the assistant principals. So there is a hierarchy. Like, so when I was assistant principal at one point, my direct boss was the principal and then the principal's direct boss in a larger district could be the assistant superintendent. But, but for us in Somerville and Manville, it was the super, it was just the superintendent uh, was a direct or direct supervisor. That makes sense. So you, yeah, not, not only had inspiration, but a lot of direct interaction with the, the role, I guess, in that. In yes. That sense. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So how would you describe the role of a, of a superintendent? What are, what are you there to do? So it starts with the board of education. So the board of education hires and fires this, the superintendent. So they pick the educational leader for the district. So the board, their role is really to set policy, like set the, like the, what needs to be done in the district, like what's the vision and what needs to happen policy wise, that's the board's role. And then they hire the leader, the superintendent to do the how, like, how are we going to reach these goals? How are we going to implement these policies? How are you going to increase student achievement? How are you going to engage a community? So that's the role of the superintendent is taking the direction from the board and implementing it. And then the team around them helps in that, that trickle down vision from the board superintendent to the principal and the principals to the teachers and the teachers to the students. So it should work cohesively. I think the most important part of the whole thing is the culture. So you really need great people. And I think so if you have a really great working board uh, who may not always agree all the time, but can they have civil discourse and model that for the community and set that great culture? And then the superintendent is he or she humanistic and a listener and a doer. And do they work well with other people and having just a positive mindset, people want to come to work. Uh, That's the most important part. I did my dissertation on school culture because it really, if you don't have a positive culture, like nothing else that you want to do is ever going to happen. Kids aren't going to want to come to school. Kids aren't going to be happy. Teachers aren't going to be happy. And then forget about student achievement. Forget about all those things. It's just, yeah, nobody wants to go to to their workplace and and a happy workplace. They want to have a happy workplace and enjoy going to work. And that's my goal. I want people to be happy coming to school, you know, whether whether you're a student or a staff member. That makes a lot of sense. And just to dive in on that topic, I know you're I know you're passionate about it a little bit. 
you know, in the in the corporate world, certainly people pay a lot of attention, at least in recent years, to mm-hmm. culture and you know employee health and happiness, glass door ratings, those kinds of things. Okay. What are the some of the metrics and signals for whether or not a school culture is quote unquote, you know, health, healthy operating well, like you said, obviously kids want to come, but as a, as a superintendent, or let's say you come into a new school, how would you assess the the health of something like that? Yeah, there's a few ways. I think the, the easy one, the first one is staff retention. So there's a lot of data out there that shows like teachers, then they leave, they're going to leave within the first one or two years of being on the job. So it's so important for us to make sure that those teachers feel supported that they have the tools that they need, the resources that they need, and that they're happy coming to work. And then they they have people that they can lean on and talk to and and have a space where they can try new things and be vulnerable and no one's going to like get them. Um, so for us in both districts, the state mandates you have like a one-year mentorship, with that's like the minimum. We do a two-year one for all our teachers because again, that research shows like the first couple of years that they might leave. So why would we just do one year and then forget about it? So we we do a two-year mentorship. We pair them up with a, a seasoned teacher, a veteran teacher. And then we also have a director of curriculum who's also our instructional coach. So they make sure that they meet with them and they're talking about what their needs are and they model lessons. So it's just really about supporting. So I look at our teachers staying in the district or they're staying in education and if they are, that that's the first signal that things are going well, that they're not leaving or they're um, that there's not a high turnover rate because that there's more research there about impact on students. So if a student has a effective or highly effective teacher consistently, their student achievement rates are going to be higher and their mental health is going to be higher because they have that consistency. But when they have turnover, constant new teachers are coming in and out. You just that's not going to bode well for anything. So the first thing is making sure that our retention rates are, are high. That makes a lot of sense. And it sounds like there is research to prove that retention has an impact on overall student performance. Absolutely. That's interesting. So, you know, you you spoke about the role and the board setting the vision. I'd love to learn a little bit about this process. I know I actually not long ago interviewed someone from the town planning board and the town planning board has a town master plan, which gets set. There's a rigorous process that they go through to set a vision for, you know, the structure of the town. I'd love to learn more. How does the planning board in in conjunction with you set a vision for an education plan and kind of what does that look like? You know, is it a document? So I'd love to learn a little bit about that, that process. Yeah. So it absolutely is a document. And uh, so ours, we have a strategic plan and we're in the fifth year of it and we're about to in, embark on a new strategic plan. But yeah, so how it began was just, we have a board strategic planning committee. It's made up of three or four board members. We want to keep it under under five because then you'd have a quorum. Uh, so we have less than five board members who are involved in it and they meet with me and the administrators and we look at just logistically, how is it going to work? So what are we looking to accomplish? And the biggest thing we want to do is we want to have community engagement in this because we don't want this plan just to be from us telling everybody this is going to be what we don't hear from our stakeholders who are so important to us. So it's our students. We want to hear from them. We want to hear from our parents. We want to hear from our guardians. We want to hear from our uh, local government. We want to hear from if we have business, local business owners. We want to hear from everybody. And the last time we did this, we did we we solicited feedback. Uh, we had in-person meetings. And eventually we came up with a five-year strategic plan. And that's the same process we're going to work on this year. Um, we're going to engage the community, engage our students here. Like, where do you feel the district is currently do, 
doing well? What, what are we doing really well? And what things can we work on? What are we lacking? And get that feedback and create a plan and then assign people who are going to hold um, those goals accountable, making sure that we are meeting those, those goals and progressing and then report out on it. Right. So we don't want to just say we're doing these things and it's a document that's on the website that looks nice and pretty, but then if there's no accountability and no communication about it, then you're going to lose buy-in. Uh, so we want to make sure that that, that is happening as well. So, so far we've, we've met a couple of times. Uh, our plan is in January, we're going to have a, our initial feedback uh, surveys that we're going to ask for our students and our staff members and our community members to, to fill out. And then we're going to have two in-person meetings where we come together. I'm going to give an overview of the state of the district and uh, some of the feedback that we got from those surveys, share that out. And then we're going to work together to develop a, we're going to do a three-year plan this time instead of a five-year. And the thought process behind is that so much is changing technology-wise and just like the landscape is changing so much that to do five years might be like, we're going to miss something. So just do three years and then we can reset a new one if we need to. So so that once, once that's in place, though, once that vision's in place, that's where everything else is supposed to fall into place with that. So for example, we know we want to go. Then we need to find staff members who are going to help us. Like, right? It's like Jim Collins getting the right people on the bus and then getting out of the way. So we want to make sure that the people that we are bringing in, new hires, are going to help us achieve those, those goals. And then when we're budgeting, because you can't, if you have all these great plans and you're not budgeting for those things and it's not, they're not going to happen. So the business administrator needs to be aware of what's coming and when it's going to come, taking advantage of grants and all that needs to be aligned to make sure that we really are able to meet the vision and, and the goals of it. And a quick question before I want to dive into some more specific yeah. about the vision. Is the resetting of the vision, does that tend to align with uh, board of education elections or anything like that, or that just kind of says we can set whatever timeline to to review this document. Yeah, it really has nothing to do with the with the election. It really has to do with just we need to have a, if you don't have a plan, you're planning to fail, right? So it's just having a plan in place, and that's a good thing. I think having the plan, it doesn't matter who the superintendent is, it doesn't matter who the board members are. It's there, and you just need to make sure that there is accountability system in place to make sure that those things are actually occurring. So it shouldn't have to rely on a specific person or pe people. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I'm, I'm assuming this is all public information so you can talk about, but as an example, you know, could you talk to me a little bit about either how the plan is shifting or, you know, what are some of the core tenets of, of, you know, maybe either what the the new plan might look like or, or that were part of the last plan, just to give an example of, hey, we kind of get to this place, we hear such and such type of feedback, and we tend to put a plan such as this together. And that's how a, you know, a shift might occur between segments of the vision. Yeah. So we'll come up with like what common themes are, are coming out of like the feedback part. So the last time we did this, we ended up with three common themes and it were school experience was one of them. It was school facilities. And then it was college and career readiness, was it? Uh, so those are things that were really important to our community. So the facilities one was easy. It's like we want to have upgrade our facilities. You know, we had a playground out in the middle school, which was completely outdated. There were some dangerous aspects of it. So we really had to make sure that we took a look at that and, and made changes. Then we had the things who they were important also that no one notices, like the roof we needed to replace, replace our roof tiles and um, HVAC, things of that nature, like those things that people may not notice, you don't see them. But if, if they're not working well, you'll hear about it. Your kids will come home and be like, oh my gosh, I mean, I'm like, 
I was in class and the roof was leaking on me and it was a like hundred degrees in my, you'll hear about that, it then. So it's really just hearing what the needs are. And then if there's a commonality between those things, really just making sure that it's, that it's addressed. So I think that's why the board's saying like, let's do a three-year one because things can change so rapidly. And with technology, if I could look back, if I would have got back like 2018, when we started doing this, if I knew COVID was coming, I would have planned better for technology and getting, uh, making sure that we had things in place for our students when we're going to just shift to remote all of a sudden, like those things, you know, hindsight's 2020, no pun intended, but yeah. <laughs> it, it it lines up well now with hindsight <laughs> yeah. for sure. And so one of the things I love to talk about is an example of, you know, some, some change or, or challenge that you worked through that you're proud of. Uh, would love to hear about that. I don't know if that relates to where we just ended on the last question, but uh, you know, would love to hear about something that you you've done that you feel, you know, particularly proud of. Yeah. And there's lots, I mean, and I give all the credit to the team, really. It's the, our principal, we have amazing leaders. We have two amazing principals. We have a great business administrator, great special services. Like we have a great team and I'm just proud to work alongside them. But some of the things we did, like when we, when we came out of COVID, our test scores were were not great. I mean, nobody's were, it was, it was bad. And there's a lot of excuses from other districts that I can hear my colleagues like, yeah, it's COVID. Like I was so sick of hearing about, you know, oh, COVID, COVID, like, all right, well, it happened. So now we have to do something about it, right? So our students are struggling. Our students have needs. We have to do something about it. So we took a, a multi-layered approach to it. Like we know we had to give students intervention. Like they're coming out. They haven't been interacting with each other, number one. And we're noticing that there, there's so many gaps in their in their learning, which is, of course is going to happen when they're on Zoom and they have a choice between I can play Fortnite or I can listen to my teacher <laughs> teach math. I'll play Fortnite. So coming out of it, we increased our summer program. So we had a summer intervention program. It was open to all students right away. We brought students in, um, in person, and we really looked at our student achievement data that we have and looked at where the gaps are. And we tried to address them. We also have, we hired interventionists. The board was really great about granting us what we needed. We told them, listen, we need intervention teachers to help these students, uh, students who are so behind that can't, their needs cannot be met specifically in this classroom, they need, we need somebody who can really give them high intensity intervention to catch them up. So the board allowed us to do that. You also said to the board, our class sizes are a little bit, are a little big right now. We can give the students more individual attention. If we can hire more staff, the board agreed to that. So they've been so supportive and telling, asking them, these are the needs. Can, can you meet them? And they've been great about saying yes to us. And our scores, we just did a presentation recently they're right back pre-COVID uh, scores. So we're right back that there. And now we have school districts who are asking to come in to visit us and say, hey, what are you doing um, that, that we can you know, emulate and implement uh, because you're doing something right? And yeah, so I give all credit to the, to the Board of Education for supporting us and our, our administrators and staff for implementing it and making sure the kids' needs are being, are being met. We're not perfect, but we're, we're trending in the right direction. No, I'm, uh, you know, that's lovely to hear. And I think what you mentioned sounds very important as well, that there was a, it sounds like a swift response to the data once you saw that there were challenges going on with the school. And because there were the right team surrounding it, you were able to to act fast, which makes a lot of sense. Is there anything in particular that has proved elusive or challenging in your, your role? 
that uh, you know you've been really wanting to implement, or or something perhaps that you ultimately did, but that really was a you know took a while and a lot of figuring out to to do. Yeah, I mean, I think the my biggest challenge right now is that I'm a shared superintendent between two districts, and they're they're very close. Franklin Township is ten minutes away from Union Township, and we try to do a lot of things together as much as we can because since we're both small. If we can combine resources as much as we can, it'll only benefit our students in the end. So like when we do summer programs, if we can have them at one building, for example, and we can have our teachers from both districts working with students, that's a win-win for, for everyone. So I, I think, but I think for us, for challenging, there's a, so there's a lot of us that are shared, which is great for the taxpayer because you save money. So instead of having your own superintendent, you're paying a salary to, and Franklin has their own superintendent, and then right down the road, you have me and you're sharing, you're splitting the cost and you're you're saving money uh, for all those roles. So we, we share myself. Uh, we used to share a business, business administrator, but we're not doing that right now because we have a brand new one and we're trying to let her get, get her feet wet before we throw her into another district. We share a child study team and a director of curriculum and director of facilities. So a lot of, a lot of high level positions that normally districts would be paying for on their own by sharing allows us to have these extra resources that can go right back to to our students which where we wanted to go but i think the challenge is it's just it's just time it's just being able to do everything so we're like we're doing two full-time positions but we're only working half time for, for, for both of them so that's i think it's the biggest challenge for all of us and it's just time management has has been so crucial to all of us making sure that that we have these are the things that we really need to do today these are the things that really need to do this week, this month, like making sure that that's clear to us and leaning on our assistance um, is so important. And um, I think that's the biggest challenge is time. And you can't really replicate everything between both districts. It's totally two different boards of education, two different communities. When we can, we will. When we can't, then it is a little more challenging because it's just trying to figure out. It's you're reinventing the wheel for two different places. And since your role is elected by the school board, do you now have two separate sets of people <laughs> technically uh, have? Yeah, so uh, yeah, I'll see how that one works. So I am Union Township's employee. So in twenty in twenty seventeen, I was hired at Union Township as the superintendent slash principal, and then that role shifted to let's let's start looking at a potential regionalization. Uh, so we actually did a regionalization study, and we're currently in the middle of it. We got a grant uh, through the Department of Education. Uh, for over $150,000. I can't remember exactly. It's a lot of money they're giving us to do a regionalization study between us, Franklin, and Bethlehem. And the reason they're doing that is to see, does it make sense for two of these districts to get together, three of these districts to get together, none of these districts to get together? What what makes sense in the end? Um, so that's what, what they're currently looking at. So that's why we kind of wanted to be like ahead of it. Like We saw like this was like a big topic of conversation in the last five or six years in terms of politics. Like, hey, New Jersey has almost 600 school districts, a lot of local boards of education, a lot of local superintendents, a lot of small districts. Does it make sense to, you know, consolidate some of these? So that's what we're looking at right now. And it'll take a few years. I think I th they're going to, they say they'll, they'll finish the study hopefully by the end of this school year. Uh, but this process has been going on for about two years. So in the end, the board of education, both board of education will get a document and they'll get some suggestions and, We'll see, does it make sense? Because then there's other things to think about. Like, how does it, does it make sense for the townships now? Because there could be, there could be debt that one township has and Franklin doesn't want union's debt and union doesn't want Franklin's debt, right? So it's a little bit higher, higher level conversation too. Yeah. And 
I, I mean, I think this is an interesting topic, right? I, I would also imagine the growth rates for these different townships are not all the same. So yeah. at one point, if one school is getting a large influx and somebody else is either stable or declining, that might also impact ultimately whether it would make sense for you all to continue yeah. the experiment. It could, and it seems like Union is growing by the fact. Franklin's actually, their enrollment is increasing as well. Uh, but Union is, because of the, the new development that we have, is increasing at a faster rate than we anticipated. So that's been fun trying to figure that out as well. I mean, it's a good problem to have. We want we want students. <laughs> yeah, job security if we have kids here. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Just to to jump uh, back a little bit into process. Um, mm -hmm. So you you talked about working with a big team to to kind of operate the school. Uh, to set the vision, you know, which sounds to me a little bit like a, a a CEO type role in a sense, right? That you're you're leading a team to kind of help get this done and make sure that there's a clear vision. Could you, you know, outside of the board of education and including them, you know, what do the interactions really look like from your role on a on a kind of day to day perspective, right? How often are you meeting with those groups? Uh, what about the PTA? Are there other kind of state or you know local officials or meetings you know what is some of that day-to-day -day and how are you interacting with different groups uh you know outside of your individual school yeah yeah engagement of like stakeholders is like a, a huge role for superintendent so there's there's a lot of different avenues that we have to cover one of them is the department of education so we have monthly meetings with department of education there's an executive county superintendent for each county some are shared our, our executive county superintendent is just for hunter and county but we have monthly meetings and we kind of we go over mandates, policies that are coming down the line, curriculum changes that are coming down the line, a lot of uh, a lot of the uh, things that just have to be that to be done compliance wise. Uh, and then we have a local superintendent meeting with North Hunterdon because we want to have articulation. So all the sending districts that go to North Hunterdon and Voorhees, we get together as superintendents and we talk about curriculum. We talk about um, you know our struggles too in terms of like staffing and things. Maybe we can problem solve within school districts. Um, we talk about athletics. We talk about transportation. All the issues that our local districts that we that we have, we try to. It's like a brainstorming roundtable that we're trying to help each other out in. And then the mayor, so I talk to our, our great mayor David all the time, uh, especially when things are coming up. You want to make sure that we're on this we're on the same page. We have a great relationship with the township. They're very supportive, and we definitely appreciate them. Local police, so union union. So here's one unique thing. Union has state troopers as our local police department, and Franklin has their own police department. So that's that's always interesting, too. So I have two different uh, contacts for our law enforcement and making sure that that memorandum, memorandum of agreement we have between the law enforcement that it's going to look a little bit different in both districts, uh, but making sure that we know in a crisis how that's going to work. And then just, and then there's other things, like just the normal engagement. Like we want to, like things that are, Part of the job is we want to engage our parents we want to engage our local community members because it's it takes a village and we want to make sure that our kids get all the resources that they need and again research shows that parents who are involved in their children's education and there's a good cohesive relationship between the between the school and the parents it's only going to benefit the student you know in the end so those are a lot of the things that just that come up the most important thing is like on a daily basis, like if a parent needs needs us right away, like we, we do try to follow the chain of command. So if a parent would have like a problem with their, let's say, for example, with one of their students, we want to make sure that they're talking to the teacher first before going right to the superintendent or talking to the principal after they talk. So we, we try to encourage, 
you know, the chain of command, but being a small district too, we try to balance that. I don't want to be like, Hey, I can't talk to you right now. So <laughs> it's just a little bit of a balance. That makes sense. And, and can you talk a little bit about your interaction with the, you know, you, you mentioned speaking with parents directly and the, and the PTA versus direct interactions. How does that, how does that work from a superintendent's point of view? Yeah. So the, the principals meet with the PTA and they will, they'll sit in on their monthly meetings and they'll try to bring to them like their building based needs that they have. And sometimes there's like a district alignment and then they'll work together with the PTA to say, Hey, you know, maybe middle school and elementary school PTA can get together and we can, we can look at this. Um, like so a lot of events that we do as well. So they, they typically do that. They'll meet, they'll meet with the PTA and they'll report back and they'll say, Hey, you know, this came out of the PTA. This may be a district decision. And, and we'll look, we'll look at those. And the best thing is when they come to me, like, Hey, the PTA has X amount of money. They want to donate to us. Like, Oh, great. That's a great problem <laughs> to have. So let's work, to, let's work to figure out how to, how to do that. And then for also, so we do monthly, I think we started this last year. We started this before COVID and then COVID hit and it, it stopped. We do community engagement called linking with leadership. And we allow our community members to come in and we have a specific topic. So at the beginning of the year, we said, Hey, what do you want us to talk about this year? What's important to you? And we have some suggestions just because we don't want to give them a blank document. I don't know. And so this year we've been talking about different topics and um, yeah, it's a great opportunity to hear about those things, but then we have an open time. So parents can ask us anything they want. And uh, so I want parents to, to know they can, they can take advantage of this. I've been trying to promote it more. And yeah, because it's like, how often do you get all the your leadership team together at once and you can ask ask us anything, any question that, that you, uh, that's on your heart and we'll answer. So, so how often does this happen? Bi-monthly, yeah. Okay. The first one was uh, just happened and the next one is in January and then there'll be one in March and then there'll be one in May. And I know this, what you're talking about, I, I assume pertains to our local district, but, mm -hmm. you know, in general, from what you know of other superintendents in other areas, you know, is that typical, that kind of community outreach? Are people sort of free to design those interactions in the way that they want to, you know? How yeah, a lot of my successful colleagues will do them. The ones who aren't successful don't. And I think that's part of it. I mean, so if the biggest complaint you'll get from people like, you know, lack of communication. So if you, you want to communicate with, with them. So I think a lot of districts will do some type of variety of that. I, you know, some of my colleagues would do like, coffee with the superintendent lunch with the that's like a one-on-one -on -one. i just like let's bring all we're a small district we have like x amount of leaders let's just bring them all bring us all together and uh you know they might have a special education question that i'm i might not be able to answer but my special education director will be able to answer or they might have a very specific curriculum question that our curriculum coordinator can can answer so that i love for our district hey here's a great opportunity for for you to ask us anything that's great and you know, I, I spoke, I speak generally to uh, quite a few people from from different parts of local and state governments who often speak about the fact that there are open public meetings, anyone could attend. Uh, and I often hear a theme that there's far less engagement than one would like with those meetings. Uh, you know, that's a question for you. How well do people engage? Do you think they understand that these kinds of things are available to them? You know, how, how would you talk about that? I think, so. I mean, well, I would, I, I'm not sure because sometimes <laughs> if there's a topic that people are really passionate about, we'll get a lot of board member or a lot of community members at that board meeting. But then there's other ones where they're not there a lot. And some, some I ask my colleagues, I'm like, hey, what does what yours look like? So I'm like, yeah, I always have standing room only. Or some I'm like, no, I don't ever have anyone there. 
And someone's someone's like, hey, take that as a compliment. There's not a people only come out when there's a problem. So I'm like, oh, maybe. So we but our board has been trying to do more with that. They said, like, let's communicate out when there's a board meeting um, on our different avenues. So we've been trying to do that more this year, like to, on Facebook. Our avenues that we use is Twitter and Facebook mainly. So we just send out like, hey, you know, local board meetings coming up. And I did a newsletter this year, a little change it up from what we've done in the past. And at the bottom of the newsletter is like upcoming board meeting dates. And it's kind of like a summary of what happened at the last board meeting. So I think that those are ways we try to engage, engage people. But can we do better and get more people there? Yeah, because I think we have two great boards in both districts. Like for like I said before, like even they don't all, they don't always agree. They're not going to. I mean, you have nine people from nine different walks of life, nine different backgrounds. They're not going to always agree. But our board has always done a great job at modeling how it really should work, how conversations should work, and how disagreements should work. And no one's takes anything personal. No one makes any personal attacks. It's like here's the facts. Here's what I believe. Here's the facts. Here's what I believe. And then in the end, you're they vote for what you know they think is right. And I think that's great. And I also think it's great that even if they disagree. And in COVID, there's a lot of disagreements during COVID. And that's every district everywhere. But in the end, like, the, so once something was voted on and agreed upon, even those who had voted yes or voted no supported the decision in the end. So I think that's the great thing about our board. So they work very cohesively. That's great. And there's a lot of interest in in Board of Education in these past couple of years, I think, yeah. far more than yeah. there <laughs> was before. And, you know, something I... I tend to ask everyone is how much do national politics tend to impact your your role? Would love to hear your perspective on on that a little bit and perhaps yeah. how that might have changed over the past few years. Yeah. I mean, so schools are supposed to be nonpartisan. So we we all know that. And I think our board has been great about that. I mean, we have again board members from different walks of life and different different uh, uh political backgrounds and that nature. But I think if we always keep the conversation, which they do, on what's best for kids, all that other stuff isn't really shouldn't matter and won't matter in the end, really. It's the conversation should just be like what what is best for students in the end and being able to kind of give a rationale for it. And there may there's gonna be disagreement on that, but but I have seen a renewed interest. Four years ago, we were begging people to join the Board of Education. We never had an election. Uh, now it's yeah, they're contested elections for the first time. And it's I think it's really interesting. I think. What's helpful for us is when we get a new board member, we do a new board member orientation between myself, the business administrator, and some of the leadership team members, because we don't want someone coming in here think, thinking they're going to change the world. The boards work together. Nobody's, your vote counts, right? But you're, you're also, you're part of a whole of nine other members. So you need to work together and five votes to get something to go, right? It has to be the majority. So I think that's explaining that, like your role really is you're setting, again, you set the vision, you set the policies. And you allow administration to do their job because then you hired us. So, and they've been really great about it. That makes sense. And have uh, you mentioned that you're in groups with a lot of your colleagues in, in other districts? Is the sentiment shared with you out there? Are, are folks struggling with the attention and, and the kind of influx of new interest in boards of education? Or, or you know, I think so. I mean, just, <laughs> some of my colleagues will probably say, like, man, there's, there's a lot of people looking to, uh, to join the board so it's either you're thinking are we doing something wrong or is there or is there a specific agenda that they want to bring so i think that's always just like just you're naturally going to be curious like why why are so many people interested in all of a sudden but again i saw i think in the end if you're able to explain the role of a board member and they're able to just understand how they fit into it and i think also listening 
too. Like, so even if my board members have disagreeing thoughts on things, I try to listen to all of my board members. I, I give them my cell phone. I said, listen, you can always call me, talk to me about anything that's happening in the school district. I'd rather talk things out with you. I tried never to let them be surprised. The worst small district, I would never want them to go to a party and be like, hey, did you hear about X, Y, and Z? And they don't even know about it. So I try to always tell them ahead of time, hey, this is happening in the school. This didn't, you know, we had a power outage. You, I don't want you to find that out at shop, right? I want you to find that out for me before the letter goes out. So I think getting ahead of the communication, making sure that that they're aware, they're aware um, is helpful. And then the, the role of the board president is so important. So they're they're the ones who really are the communicators for the Board of Education to speak on, on behalf of the board. And our board president does a really great job of that, of funneling inquiries from the community and answering those on behalf of the Board of Education, because it really should be one person who who does it. Otherwise, you might have like dissenting thoughts on things, which two different hats you wear, right? You're a community member, but you're also a Board of Education member. So you don't, it can be confusing about if there are so many people answering questions, like are, are you answering as a board member or answering as a community member? Like we don't want those lines to get blurred. That makes a lot of sense. Is there anything that you find surprising about the role of superintendent in terms of the influence that you can have on a on a school or a school ecosystem? Yeah, it's humbling and like terrifying, <laughs> honestly. It's like, wow, the decisions that we make can have a real impact. We'll do have a real impact on on our students' lives and our in our whole community. So we really try to take that into into account, and it's like a awe inspiring thought. Like, oh my gosh, what you decide, what we decide, and how we do these things are going to have an impact on people's lives. And I think keeping that in mind is always important. And um, you know, for me, I have children. All the leaders have children, and some of the things that we think about when we're looking at, for example, teachers and how should we keep a teacher, should we non renew a teacher, especially the non tenured ones. Would I put my own child in their classroom? That's a, kind of like our our own thought process behind the whole thing. Most of the time, the answer is yes. But if we hesitate at all on that, we're like, well, then if we wouldn't put our own kids in there. We're not going to do this to our, to our community members' children. So some of the thoughts that we have, and it's like uh, things that keep us up at night. That makes sense. No days, too. Those are the worst. <laughs> <laughs> not happening so much these days. <laughs> is there anything that you think a superintendent should be able to do or influence that you are not able to do in your role? Well, some of the mandates that come down from, from the Department of Education or from or, or law, sometimes just like your hands are tied with a lot of things. You know, most of the time, it's, it's not a big disagreement on things, but sometimes there, there is, and it's just like, well, it's law, I can't do anything about it, or, or no, this is, a, this is a mandate from the Department of Education, nothing, nothing we can do about it. So some sometimes that's frustrating, but at the same time, it's our job. So we just we do we try to do as best we can for the district within those confines. And that just sometimes we're just looking at where's the where are the boundaries and that we have to stay within. And most of us, I think most leaders who are trying to be innovative, things like that, don't we don't like to be stuck in a box, but sometimes there is a box we have to stay within them. We have to stay within it. So that's probably frustrating. That makes sense. That sounds like an interesting process. I'd love it if you could walk through you know, an example of of either a new law or a mandate that has come through the DOE, you know, may, maybe something that took a little challenge to implement or something and, and kind of how that process works, just so people understand what that looks like. Yeah. So, I mean, most of the mandates that come down will either be, like, say, curriculum changes will, will occur. The biggest frustrating part with those things, like, they literally will come down and they'll tell districts, you have until September to put these things in place. 
It's like, we're working backwards. I'm like, why don't you give us like a year or two heads up so we can start thinking about these things, putting people in place to hire them and, and things of that nature. So there'll be like a mandate, like, all right, the entire math curriculum is going to change. That takes a lot of time to just redo your entire math standard. Math standards are going to change. They have to implement a new curriculum. And then there's a curriculum math that goes with it to say like in September, this is how this standard is going to be taught. And then we kind of go through the whole entire year and making sure that it's all aligned and making sure that does it align to the test, right? So there's a, we don't teach the test, but at the same time, we don't want our students, we don't want to set our students up for failure. If we want to make sure that our curriculum is being taught before these kids are going to be tested on it. So because that's frustrating for students to be like, no one ever taught me this. Are you going to test me on this? So those are some of the things that, that are just frustrating when they just come out without any time. And that happens a lot. It just happens a lot. It's just, I just government is here. Here's your mandate. Here you go. Figure out, figure it out. And does the state DOE solicit any feedback from either superintendents or I guess county superintendents? What what does that process look like if it does exist? They do. They do. They there will be like there'll be open times and begin to ask questions to like the uh the school, the local uh, sorry, the uh state school board. We can solicit questions to them, ask them questions. There are times to give feedback. And most of the time the feedback that we give is can you give us more time with with this new initiative or this new mandate that you want us to do. And the other biggest frustrating part is just the, the budget. So we've been blessed the union that we haven't been impacted. A lot of districts have been impacted with budget cuts over the last few years. And it's just like their state aid that they've relied on has been taken, has been taken away or, or really lessened And that. And that looks, that could impact a lot. And there's some local districts who, who were impacted and did lose a lot of state funding. And then that means you're, that's only going to impact the kids. If you have less money, then you can't have, then you can't hire teachers. And you're going to let teachers go. And what, who does that impact the kids when you're having, you went from 19 kids in a class, now you're having 25 kids in a class. Um, so those are the things that are just, those are super frustrating uh, when those those funding cuts occur. But we've been fortunate that it hasn't really impacted us negatively. And this, this may be per, outside of your area of expertise, but I'm assuming you know a little bit about it. Are those budget cuts usually just related to shrinking and growing populations? Like why... Why would a school district receive a, a budget cut theoretically? What what would have to change for that to happen? Yeah, no one's figured out the formula. So a couple of years ago, there was a new formula that was that was put into place. And a lot of schools called the S2 schools that were impacted by this. Like so this is public information, like Bethlehem Township, right down the road from us, they lost a million dollars over a, a few years. And the, the people are like, oh, that's nothing. For a small district, that's that's a lot. So they're they're battling how how are we going to keep our teach our teaching staff together? And but there's no rhyme or reason for that like that we could see like why, why it's happening. There's been a lot of a lot of pushback with that. Like why are why are certain districts getting this funding that others are not? Um, it's just I don't know. It's impacting it's impacting kids a lot. So we rely on grants. So we don't get a lot of state aid. We rely on grant writing. So all the administrators are really great about writing grants. One of them that we just wrote is the preschool expansion aid grant that we're hoping to get, and that'll allow us to have free preschool for all of our students, which would be huge for our, for our district and allow us to expand. And, and that helps a lot because we can get the kids at a younger age and we can start educating them, you know, from three and four years old, which is only going to help them, you know, down the line and also help the parents out a lot. Right. Um, so we're trying, we're still waiting to hear back on, on that one, but those are the type of programs that we, when we see them, we jump on them right away. Could you help me understand a little bit of the, the pie chart of school funding? Yeah. What what percentage is coming from what sources, roughly, let's say grants, you know, 
township state funding how does that work small portion of our of our local budget comes from the state most of it is coming from our tax levy i would probably say 80 percent of it's coming from tax levy and then so like when we when you break that down most of and once most of our budget goes to teachers and salary i think 80 it's like 85 percent of our set of our budget goes to teachers and salaries the challenge with that is most most of the increases are you know, three percent raise every year for staff for teaching staff. That's probably like anywhere between two point five and three percent is like normal around. But all districts can go up to without going out to a vote is a two percent. That's your cap on a on a yearly basis. So just like doing the math, like I can only go up two percent, but I got to pay people pay people three percent every year. We're running out of money. It's never going to be. It's never going to match. So that's always the biggest challenge in figuring that 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 piece out. It's a struggle. So when yeah, and that again, what's yeah, where's so, the restriction on two percent coming versus? Yeah, so there's a two. Every district has a two percent cap levy, so we can't go past. We can increase our budget up to two percent on a yearly basis without going out to the voters. Years ago, we used to be able to the total budget, budget. The total budget, yeah. Year years ago, there would be a you vote on the budget every year, like no matter what the increase was. Like you can be a flat budget, and the township would vote on it, and the community members vote on it. Now it's local boards would approve it as long as we stay within the two percent cap. But that's not a lot. I mean, that's really it's it's great that we don't have to try to go out to vote for those things, but it's still not it's not meeting our needs. It's just if we especially if we have we have a great district where no one wants to leave, we have teachers at the higher scale. It's just where's the where's the money coming from? It's just that's just the way the struggle. So it's trying to be innovative and finding grants to have these other programs for kids because we have to pay, you know, our budgets only, and save and sharing. Our administrators is another way we stay we stay within the budget. It's just we really have to do these things to you know, get innovative. So to, to make sure I understand this, right? If you have a growing school district mm-hmm. and one of your biggest costs is your teachers and administrators, right? They're 80 something, two, five percent of your your cost. And to to keep them whole, or maybe even according to their contracts, they have to get a three percent annual raise to keep up with inflation but your total budget is capped at a 2% growth. So even if your school district is growing, your year-on-year budget is still capped based on a on a previous yeah. dollar yeah. amount? Basically, and, yes. Yeah. And so then you're going out to write a bunch of grants to basically cover the growth. I mean, some, although the if the town is- caveats, There's some other caveats in there. For instance, the, the enrollment one. Our, our enrollment has been increasing. So the last two years- We've been able to what's called go up high, past the two percent because it's called an enrollment adjustment, which is that's been great. So we could go past the two percent. There's a and they give you percentage every year where you can, if we were to get that adjustment, that we could go up to, and that again would be without a vote. And the board has done that, did that last year to cover the cost of class three officers. That was not in our budget. So two class three officers are going to cost us one hundred and ten thousand dollars, and fifty five thousand dollars for each of them. And like we, that's like we can't. We have to fire teachers. We don't want to fire teachers over security. We want to have both, right? So when that enrollment adjustment came in, the board said, "All right, let's cover the cost of the class three officers with that, so we don't have to impact the teachers." But if that hadn't come in. I don't know how we were gonna. We were gonna try to figure that out how to fund it. It was gonna be difficult to fund. So it sounds like there are some measures in place where if the town is automatically growing and the tax levy is growing, there are some automatic increases based on student enrollment. But I guess it's only the year behind. That's the only that's the other challenge Uh to it. October 15th, every district sends their enrollment data out. 
that's called the snapshot. So there's, at that point, and that's what the state uses as the enrollment decisions for everything. It's like, so whatever our enrollment was on October 15th of that school year is our enrollment for that year. So I can get October 16th, I can get 75 kids coming. And that's where the, and then I still have to educate them in, within the budget that I have. So that, that could be challenged. It actually happened to us with, with the, uh, with the uh, new development. We have all these influx of students right around our, our snapshot. So to go do our best we can. Yeah, that's wild. So I imagine, I mean, that's got to be one of the biggest challenges for school districts everywhere in America. A new developer comes into your town, adds, you know, 2% or 3 or 5% to your school all of a sudden, or it could be more depending on what size your town is. And you have to maybe hire two teachers or double stack all your classrooms with kids for a year until you can catch up with the tax tax base essentially. Yeah. And the latter seems to happen to other districts because there's like, oh, we can't afford to hire more and more teachers. So it's just like, so now you're going to have classes of 27, 28, 29, which is not great. No. And then, so outside of that 2% increase, if there, if, if more budget exists, and you want to add more budget then that you're saying has to go to a vote by the school board yeah so at the board let's let's say and there are some districts who have done this because there's some larger districts who have said we can't operate on a two percent increase every year we're not it's like we can't we can't so they've been going out to vote every year they're doing an april election they've been and they've been asking for a, a you know an increase in their in their tax levy and they've been going and then one superintendent uh did like three percent increase and they have to go out to vote for that extra one percent and then every year he's been adding it a little bit incrementally and he's been passing. So, so far it's been working for, and his strategy has been like communicating. Okay. We, you want great buildings. You want small class sizes. This is my pie. I need my pie to be bigger for you to have those things. So the voters have been, have been supportive of that. His yeah, voters. That's, yeah. Yeah. That's uh, that, so for a place for a townships where taxes are very high. That's that, that's a, that's not as easy as sell. Right. Yeah. Well, and back to where we began this conversation, if you want a high quality school environment, mm -hmm. which means you're lowering retention, which means you're trying to retain more senior teachers who are higher paid, whose increases then are a larger percentage of the budget as they're growing up. Technically, if you have a successful school district, you are even more likely to have issues with the budget increases. <laughs> probably <laughs> right i mean <laughs> because yeah, if you have really low if you have really low retention and you're and you're constantly hiring younger teachers who cost less yeah. that you know in in theory works well for the budget but would probably yeah. not work well for the school district yeah. but yeah 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 it's it's a dance it really it's a it's a dance and it's a balance and uh it's yeah it's a challenge but it's a fun challenge to have because I think the great thing about all educate, I saw all 99% all of administrators, probably, I don't know, a lot of administrators have been teachers before. So we've seen it. We've seen it, what it takes. We, we had that, we had that empathy part piece of it. Like we know, we know what they're dealing with. We know what that looks like. So I think it helps in our decision-making in the end too. Like, so I knew what it's like to have 29 students in a class. It's not, I wasn't getting to every, every student. It still haunts me to this day. Like my first class ever, it was 29 kids and I didn't get there with all those kids. There's no way. How, how can I get 29 students who also, and I taught in an urban district, these students even speak English. We're trying to teach them curriculum. I was like, it was supposed to be an English language class. Like, that's another challenge that, teach, that teachers are facing. So it's just, we have to make sure that we are supporting them, giving them the resources they need, but that, that costs money.
So it's our job to figure out how do we get to yes. <laughs> and at the state level, uh, just to speak a little bit of that, I mean, are there, is it ultimately up to the school district or does the state have anything to say about, you know, you have to maintain a certain class size or ratio of students to teachers? Like, are there, is there a lot of freedom there or are there some restrictions that basically say on a state level, if you're not meeting these standards, you're probably not operating well enough or something? Yeah, like that. there's there are best practices out there and there's some guidelines. Ones that are mandated are preschool. I think there's 15 students, but especially with the preschool expansion grant, you need 15 students is like you're capped at. And then, and then preschool, kindergarten, you can't have more than 25 without special permission. And that's, that's a lot. So 25 kindergartners is a lot. But other than that, it's like, there's some best practices out there, uh, some guidelines. You know, I taught first grade. I think you could probably have like anywhere between 18 to 21 and you'd be okay. You start getting 22, 23, 24 in first grade. I don't know if that's, that's tough. Uh, but there's research that'll show both sides. It'll say, hey, it doesn't matter. Some will show you. It does matter a lot. It's, you can find research on anything, right? But, yeah. That's true. And I guess are are there more stipulations and guidelines that tend to come with the grant money? Or yes, yes, yeah. So when we have a grant, we have to follow the guidelines like to the T. So we right now we have a uh, we have a grant with the Polytech local school district that we have. So it's a partnership. So our students get to work with the high school students. They do a lot of innovative work. They do computer science work in academies. But so the state gave us. Uh, $60,000 every year for the last three years for this. But it's it's very spelled out, like what the money can be used for, uh, what's being taught in there. And it's, it's been great. It's a great opportunity for our students, but we have to but make sure that we are, every dollar is accounted for, our auditors look at it. There's a lot of accountability in place with that, but there's, yeah, but it's the, yeah, they, they look, they, they give you money, they, they have expectations. <laughs> and that brings up an interesting point, I guess. What, how how many people and and what amount of effort is aimed at at compliance with you know grants and and DOE requests? I imagine that's a, a non insignificant amount of labor for the reporting and all those things. Yeah. How does, uh, how does that yeah, it's a great question because every every district, regardless of size, has the same deadline, same compliance paperwork, same same needs across the board. So you could be a district of eight thousand students. And you have the same reporting system that a school district of 400 students will have. So in those large districts, you'll have people who are just doing a report for, let's say, student enrollment or doing a, a report just for uh, the cafeteria. Us, small district, we're wearing 50 hats. So I have one person who is in charge of like 30, 30 different reports. So in the beginning of the year, we go we go through the mandated, like all compliance uh, documents that are needed, all the everything that that's due for the DOE throughout the whole year, and we just we go through it and we, sit, we tell her who's responsible for what, and we have people who are holding them accountable for it, and uh, we're really good. We have, we've been we have something called it's called QSAC, which is their uh, it's accountability. Every every district goes through this on a, on a three year uh, process, and we've been uh, highly proficient every time. So we've been, we have we're a very efficient district. We've been. But everyone's doing a lot. That's that's the yeah. No one's bored. No one's <laughs> for sure. Yeah. And ultimately, I'm assuming that operation and making sure that everything's done correctly, all the compliance work is done. That that is directly under your responsibility. Is that correct? In the end, yes. In the end, in the end, I have to make sure that it's all that's that's all being completed on time, and I have to ch double check the reports to make sure because before they go out. Mm -hmm. I mean, a larger district might work a little bit differently, but a smaller one, 
the buck stops with me. So I really have to make sure that because it could impact our, for example, if we made an error in our enrollment, that could that could impact our our funding. So to make sure that's very accurate and uh, yeah. You mentioned this somewhat in the beginning that there tends to be some quote unquote traditional paths into the superintendent's office, yeah. but I'd love to hear a little bit. What do you think are really the most important skills and experiences a superintendent needs to have to to do this job well? I think number one is humility. So when I first started, I became a principal at 29 years old and I was like, I thought I arrived. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm young. I, this is great. And I got some really bad advice from someone who's like, listen, you're young. You need to go in there hard and show everybody who's the boss. And I was like, okay. It was not, it's not really my personality anyway. So I kind of went in there like, trying to be a hard boss and like check, like it was I was ridiculous I was really ridiculous and I look back I, I should go back and find all the teachers and apologize I was like that really wasn't me but I think I learned quickly like you're not going to win people over that way I think it's just you have to just build relationships and naturally I think that's my personality I love people all, from all walks of life I do I enjoy people my wife and I have 10 children so I like being around little human beings too so I think that's part of it I think you really have to build relationships I think relationships is Humility and having genuine relationships with people is the most important part of it. Because uh, then from there, you build a team. You have a team in place. You're working together. You're celebrating when you get achievements. You're crying together when things don't go don't go well. When there's a tragedy in the school district, you know you're you're at the funeral. You know you're raising money for for local uh, families who need it. It's you know it's it's like a family. So I think that that's that's the important part. Like really being invested in your local community. And just and it's not glamorous. I think if I ever wrote a book, I'd write my title would be "Leadership is Not Glamorous." I think in the beginning, it's like, oh, it's great you have this title, but it's it's all about service. If you're not if you're not burning yourself out for this, your community, you're doing something wrong. Really, you have to. These are the people that you've been entrusted with. It's a privilege that you're able to serve this community. You have to give your blood, sweat, and tears for them, or else you're in it for the wrong reasons. And according to the hierarchy you mentioned before right i imagine in your role you have to mentor guide and manage principals and other school administrative staff right yeah that's yeah and that's my i enjoy that a lot i really do because i got i got to hire 90 percent of our administrators that was that's that's fun and the things that i look for is I can teach people a lot of things. I can't teach them how to be good human beings, good people. That's the first thing. Like, do you love children and do you love other people? And you're able to work with with other people. Uh, so that's always been fun trying to find people who are who are great and love what they do. And I've and I love promoting from within. I find a lot of joy in in, in developing our staff members to admit it to leadership roles because they they're invested. They're here. You know, our director of curriculum, uh, Ms. Piccolo, she started off as a teacher here. And I always admired her as a teacher. Her student achievement scores are really great. And so when that role opened up, I was like, this is a no-brainer. I mean, we did open it up. We had interviews, but I was like, this, we have somebody here. Why would we go outside, you know? Uh, sometimes people just want to go outside just for the sake of going outside. I was like, no, we have we have somebody internally that we built up and put time in. Why wouldn't we promote them? So that's always that's always meaningful. And I, and I, I love I love when my principals go on to, so I've been mentor, I've, I've also mentored on the side. One of my side gigs, all of us have side gigs, but I, I really enjoy mentoring new leaders and helping them grow and learning from my mistakes as a new leader. I didn't have anybody. When I first started, I was a teacher and I, I was in a, I was in a private school. And so there was, there was not a lot of support there. So I, I figured it out. I was like, oh, 
figured it out. So I like to try to tell people, don't do this, don't do this. I did that already, fell on my face. Do this work, this doesn't work, and just trying to help. And a lot of people I've worked with are now either principals or superintendents. That that actually brings me a lot of joy and and happiness. And my and our principals here, either one of them could take over at any time. And they would be great. They'd be great superintendents and great leaders. And that that's what I like. If I could, I want to be, I want to make my position obsolete or my, me obsolete. So if I were to go on to somewhere else, if I were to become a barista tomorrow or something, that's my dream job. Someone could internally could take over and, and we wouldn't miss a beat or it'd probably be even better. So. And do a lot of the other superintendents, you know, are a lot of them have, because you have a, a doctorate, correct? And, and what is that? A doctorate in educational leadership uh, took me a long time. Did a little bit, little took a little bit, little. Uh, yeah, I mean, so I, I think I learned this from some sports analogies. Like, I think the best leaders are those who are okay with somebody coming in after them and being better than they were. And that takes a lot of humility. And that's that's you want to make sure you're putting things in place that could happen. Some of the worst leaders are those that I've seen this too. They're they're ones who come after them are. Are terrible and they, they enjoy that because they're like oh look the whole district fell apart because i'm not there anymore i mean that's not that's not leadership that's just you know that's a level four leader right you want a level five leader in collins who's who has that humility and said the organization is more important these people are more important so you want somebody to take over in the end who will do a better job than you will it takes humility to do that i i love that answer i noticed you mentioned jim collins a, a couple of other times love, yeah it's a favorite book just for fun uh are there any other you know, books or individuals who have had a huge influence yeah. on your leadership style. I love Simon Sinek. He writes a lot of books. Um, he does. A, he's also the Golden Circle guy. You know, start with the why. A lot of his books are great. I love anything from Jim Collins writes. I love Collins, and I also love an old one, How to uh, How to Win Friends, How to Influence People and Win Friends, Dale Carnegie book. I love that book. It's like nineteen twenties, I think, but it's amazing. It really, is a, an amazing book, and it's so true. A lot of a lot of things I, I start I think about now and like day to day. It's just like nobody cares about yourself like when you're when you're making plans you're thinking about other people the most important sound in a person's ears is their name like using people's names remembering their names little things like that it's all about you know relationship and that's, so I, I love those books anything with carnegie and collins some, some absolute leadership classics i like it <laughs> what what has surprised you most about this job versus your expectations of it you've been in you've been in for quite a while but perhaps yeah. you remember this yeah i mean <laughs> i'm never surprised by anything anymore i would say i think may, may, maybe that we're not I, I want a blue ribbon that's like my, my ultimate goal i want a blue ribbon for both districts and i haven't gotten that that's been disappointing and i like try to figure out like, how the heck do i get one i've been calling people i'm like our student achievement's really good. Like, what, what's the problem? I don't have a great straight answer for that one. So that's been eluding me and it's been bothering me. I, think, <laughs> I need to get one before I retire for both districts. <laughs> that makes sense. What, if anything, is the most common misconception you encounter with the with the public or, you know, parent or student population about your role? I think the communication part maybe maybe a little bit of a challenge. Sometimes we can't give them as much information as the public would like, especially when it comes to things of security. So I think they may think that we're not being transparent, and it's not the case. Sometimes we're working with law, law local law enforcement. They're like, you can't tell them X, Y, and Z. So I'm like, so I'm going to send a letter out to there may be something, but I can't tell you what it is. I mean, they're going to hate me. I'm like, like yeah, that's all you can do. So those are some like some of the communication what I'm able to share with people like that. They're like, well, you should be able to share anything if you're transparent. I'm like, well, that's not always true. But 
I try to though. We try to be as transparent as possible with things, but we can't always be as transparent as people would like. So I think that's a misconception and it's a challenge. That makes sense. In addition to your dueling blue ribbons, you know, if if you had your magic wand to make any change in our school district uh, or or simultaneous districts today, is there anything you would love to to be able to to do that's that would require some magic? A lot of facilities changes. I I think we have great facilities on both of them, but I would like more state of the art outdoor equipment for our students. It's just I think it does wonders for them. Just more more facilities upgrades that we can. But it's just it's tough. It takes it takes those are capital projects. It takes a lot of planning. It takes time. It takes time to plan for those things and, and budget for those things. And right now we're going out. We went out for a referendum for HVAC recently. I think we did a good job communicating those things. But um, but if I had a magic wand, I would just I would just fix all those things right away without without asking anybody. Just just fix it all. Give the kids a air conditioning because with and people are like, oh, it's only hot for three months. Yeah, but those you sit in those in those chairs for three months. See if you uh, if you can learn anything. So little things like that. That makes sense. And in in general, with those kinds of things, those are you're saying other additional uh, challenges that you're you're balancing out with the with the budget on a year to year basis, right? What can you yeah. upgrade or maintain? And then I know that sometimes you know PTAs and and you know will raise funds for the school. Do you get involved in that stuff as well, or does the school administration really communicate that and say, "Hey, here are some things we we need"? Is that, uh, you know, is, is that a pretty typical process with all school districts that they rely on the PTAs as supplemental budgeting, or is that, you yes, know, only they, some have educational foundations, which is a little bit more philanthropic, and they'll be just, those are like larger. And we don't have one of those, but some districts do have those. And those are for like larger scale donations and projects. So if you were to start one of those that probably would be helpful but i don't know if we would have i don't I don't know i've never done one before so but i know some districts do and that that helps to supplement their budget if they can get those donations in so i'm assuming that's an instance where if you have a, a fairly wealthy school district or something like that you can create a foundation and basically say does anyone want to make a large gift that we can then allocate over time to the school system basically yeah basically and that would always be helpful but always take that but not a lot. Of, I don't think a lot. Of, I don't know of any local districts here that have one. I think some of the. I could be wrong though. I, I could double check that. But not on the K to eights. I don't think anyone has one. Gotcha. But you're saying that's that is a a sort of an allowable route that a superintendent could create that for their district. And you're saying maybe yeah. it's more common in in high schools or something like that, where they're, in addition they can say not only can we apply for grants, but we can create a device to go fundraise directly with the community for additional budget needs. Yeah, absolutely. And our PTA has done that in a, on a smaller scale. I mean, they, they help uh, with our, a lot of our playground projects that we've done outside. They've, they've donated a, a good chunk of money, which we appreciate on a smaller scale. I love we it. Always appreciate them. They're great. They really are great. And they're the ones who always volunteer for, for things and show up to events. So they're, they love our PTA. Is there anything about how your role operates or or really important things that superintendents do that you think we have not covered today? I mean, I, I think most superintendents that I know are in it for the right reasons. They're in it for trying to make a difference for their own communities and their and the students that they serve. So I think if if, if anyone listening to this hates their superintendent or I don't know, give them another chance. I, th- I think most of them are not in it to try to 
get one over on anybody or try to ruin in anyone's day or or ruin this experience for kids most of us love you know most of us were teachers and we love being around kids this is why we, and the reason we kept going up the ladder is we can make a bigger impact and help and help students so i think give them a chance work with them ask them what they need and how they can help i like that and are there any other messages of uh, encouragement or requests you would like to give a shout out to the community of, of listeners, local and local and otherwise? Yeah, I think all everyone should appreciate their board of education members, especially in New Jersey. None of them are paid. They're all volunteers. They do a lot of hours outside of the school day that no one ever sees. We have committee meetings that they're a part of. There's lots of uh, conversations that they're a part of, meetings that they're a part of. And most of them are what? They have their, they have other jobs. They have their own children. So a lot of that they don't they don't see they only see the the board meeting for one hour or an hour two hours on a monthly basis but there's a lot of hours that they're putting in on their own time so they don't they go unnoticed and we appreciate that they really do so thank you to our board members that makes sense and I guess one other question I was thinking about ultimately the as you mentioned if people are are quote unquote unhappy with their superintendent I imagine it's really the job of the board to be managing the superintendent and holding them accountable for how well they're delivering on the vision they set. Is that correct? Yes. yes. So my, I get evaluated by my by local board of education. They're the ones who tell me, hey, you're doing great in this. You need to work on this. Um, and I have, and Franklin is my other board, but I'm union's employee. I just, I'm outsourced to Franklin. So union holds my contract, union does my evaluation, but they get input from Franklin uh, as because I still want to do a good job for them, even though I'm not technically their employee. I'm just outsourced to them. But yeah, so my, the board tells me, do this, do, don't do this, doing this terribly, doing this great. <laughs> and it sounds like, you know, in your district, there's a, a, a very healthy environment between the administration, the school board, you know, the community in general. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, do you think it's a challenge for a lot of folks to have, a group of people, let's say on the board of education who may not have any background in education, you know, sort of managing superintendents in the, in the school district. Do you think that, do you think that mostly works out based on folks you, you've talked to, or is that a, a, a challenge that that intersection between kind of public experience and, and in real educational experience? Yeah, I, I think it goes honestly both ways. So I, I've had teachers on boards of education, educators on boards of education and where they're helpful is a lot of things I don't have to explain to them because they they get it they see it they they know it. Some challenges though with having uh, people with those backgrounds is they have a one way they've always seen it in their own school district. So they're like, well, my district does it this way. I'm like, oh, okay. So that's and that may not work in our district. So that's one challenge that comes with that. I actually like having non-educators on it with different backgrounds. It's just I, I learned something more from. Like, you know, I have a board member who's in technology, so I'll learn something about technology from that board member. I have, you know, former CEO on, on so how they vision plan and how they make sure that things are working well and efficiently. I get ideas from them. So I, I love having non, and from my stay-at-home moms who are, you know, I get that, I get that aspect and they say, hey, you know, I didn't, you may have thought this communication was clear, but I didn't. So, and, you know, as a stay-at-home mom, this is how I, I, I viewed it. So everyone from the different walks of life really, really help is really helpful. So I, I enjoy having more members who are from different, different backgrounds, because in the end, we're going to learn from that. That's great. Well, thank you so much. 
and I really greatly appreciate the the time. It's lovely to learn about the role of the superintendent, and I hope everyone really enjoys listening to this interview as well. No, I appreciate it. It was a pleasure, and uh, yeah, thank you for all those who are listening, and thank you to all our educators out there for all they do for kids on a daily basis. Oh, one one last thing, because it just came across in conversation so fast. Did you say that you have 10 children? I do. Yeah, I do. So my oldest is going to college next year. He's 17 and my youngest is five. So I have a, a large range of yeah. <laughs> kids there. You practically manage your own district at home as well. That's, uh... <laughs> my wife's the CEO of the house. Though. <laughs> that is incredibly impressive. Well, thank you so much again and have a wonderful day. And I really appreciate the time. Likewise. Thank you. Have a great day. Thanks. Thank you for listening to another podcast of 60 Second Democracy. I hope that you enjoy what you're learning here. I know I'm learning a lot. Please leave comments, subscribe, and in general, let me know whether you're enjoying this, whether you have ideas for other ways to approach this, or other folks to interview to learn more about what's happening in your town or your democracy. Thank you so much for listening. You can find us on all platforms where podcasts are available. Thanks for listening.